This week on the show, we have an article about choosing the right ZFS pool layout from Clara Systems, changes in the OpenBSD that make life better by Peter Hanstein, GhostBSD 210906 ISOs are not available, fair internet bandwidth management with OpenBSD, NetBSD Wi-Fi router project updates with NetBSD on the Apple M1 updates as well, HardenBSD on August status reports, FreeBSD journal issue on wireless and desktop, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 420, OpenBSD Makes Life Better, recorded on the 8th of September 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backup for the truly paranoid. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Teuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to another episode with fresh BSD news and uh, yeah, anything we found on the web for you. And it starts with headlines from Clara Systems choosing the right ZFS pool layout. Yeah, uh, so when you're creating your ZFS pool, the initial layout is probably one of the most permanent decisions you will make uh, in the life of the pool, obviously. And, you know, uh, a lot of people now are getting to the point where they have pools that are, you know, seven or eight or 10 years old. Uh, and if they made a mistake that 10 years ago, They've been paying for it for a long time. Uh, so this article walks through some of the things you want to consider before you create the pool and, you know, the differences of the things that you can deal with after the fact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good to know. And since pools live very long and hopefully long enough uh, for your data to never disappear, um, choosing the right layout is, as Alan said, where this article explains us, uh, an important thing. So the first thing they start off with an example, zpool create test pool with three disks in it. And that's a stripe because you don't specify any VDEF or special VDEF like a mirror or mm -hmm. a RAID Z. You have to be careful with that term because special VDEF is the type of VDEF now. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. There's literally a VDEF type <laughs> called special. That's now. very special. <laughs> okay. So no uh, keyword, let's say, and that gives you a, a stripe. And if one of those disks dies, all the others lose their data with it. Yeah, because basically each chunk of data is split across those three disks. Uh, not exactly, but pretty close to it. Um, so like, you know, if you make one 128K record, it's going to write 4K to disk one, to disk two, to disk three, and then back to disk one, two, three, one, two, three. Uh, and there's no redundancy. So if you lose one of the disks, if you were looking at a, a graphical representation of the file, every third four kilobytes of the file would be missing. And uh, that makes it pretty impractical to do anything and ZFS won't be able to read the metadata uh, and so the pool will be unrecoverable. Uh, so don't create a striped pool unless you're sure uh, you're okay with all that data going away. Mm -hmm. If you have created such a pool and you have your most important data on those, you can still, um, without you know recreating that pool on another system and copying everything over, you can set the copies to three in this case to have ZFS write three copies of each data block and distribute those among the three disks. Yeah, but it's not really a good guarantee. Um, you, your best bet is to get more disks and use the zpool attach feature to turn those stripes into mirrors. Yes, that can be done on a live pool without having to you know, backup and restore. You can do yep. this in place and that's what they show uh, next. And you know, it, it has become possible to remove uh, mirrors and striped VDEVs, but not RAID Z. 
Um, in newer versions of ZFS, you can actually remove a disk, although it's not quite that straightforward. Um, the disk technically still stays in the pool just as a virtual disk. That is a, a remapping table that says, you know, the 100 megabytes that were at the beginning of the disk are now on this other disk, and the next 100 megabytes are somewhere else. And uh, in as big a chunks as it can, describing where the data moved to. Uh, and so that uh, indirection table ends up having to live in memory to not just kill the performance of your pool. Over time, when you overwrite data and it writes it properly to the new location and doesn't reference it on the virtual disk, that table can keep shrinking. And in your zpool status, you can see over time that you know, you've removed one VDEV uh, and it's currently using this much memory and that amount will keep going down over time as eventually uh, if you've replaced all the data that was on the disk that's removed, then it won't need the redirection table anymore. Mm, okay. So there is a cost to removing a VDEV, but it dissipates over time as you replace, uh, you know, overwrite the data with newer versions and those get written to the disks that are still around uh, and don't have to go through that level of indirection. And, you know, the ability to remove a disk doesn't exist for RAID Z. Um, Soon you'll be able to add an additional disk to a RAID Z, but you won't be able to change the RAID Z level or remove a disk from a RAID Z. But adding one might show up uh, next year. Oh, okay. Good to know. Yes, uh, there was a... Manarin's gave a talk about it at the FreeBSD Dev Summit a couple months ago. It's on YouTube if you're interested. Mm -hmm. I'm sure we talked about it back then. And we will <laughs> talk about it again when it's uh, ready for uh, general use. Uh, but for now, we, they next talk in the article about the mirror VDEVs uh, to have that redundancy from the start. Uh, and they highlight even that it's even possible now to shrink a pool comprised of several mirrors by removing one of them. Uh, so keeping the flexibility provided by mirrors is an important feature to consider when deciding which type of VDEV to choose. Ah, yes, that's good. And then they talk about RAID Z and the considerations of how many disks, how your hardware is distributed, what the space efficiency is going to be, how compression is going to play into it, uh, the problems with padding. So depending on how many disks you have and your record size, certain RAID Z layouts can be more or less efficient than you would expect. Uh, and so uh, there's some discussion of that. And it also talks about um, how you can actually look at what the results would be from that. Mm -hmm. Um, and a little test script for that. The, and then there's also a discussion of DRAID and how that works. So if you're going to have a very, very large number of disks, it might not make sense to have, you know, uh, two disks of parity in each group, right? If you have 60 disks and you're going to do, you know, 10 separate RAID Z2s of six disks, um, you know, you're giving up quite a few disks to parity, like 20 out of your 60 disks are parity. That's probably too much. DRAID allows you to solve that problem by having groups of six, but only having in total enough uh, parity to handle the two losses out of the entire uh, pool uh, and distributing the parity and the spares around the pool. Uh, but of course, you need to remember that RAID is not a backup. So whether you're using mirrors or RAID Z or DRAID, you still have to have backups because you know, ZFS is there to try to keep your data online. Like the, the point of RAID is to keep the data working when a disk fails. It's not uh, to ensure that your data is there forever. You still need to have backups. There are plenty of ZFS error messages that say, this is broken, restore from a backup. Yeah, and you should have that before the message appears. 
otherwise yeah mm, not so good exactly and so uh, the article explains all this with a nice uh, examples uh, in code and in, you know sepal status output and there you can follow up and uh, try it on your own if you say oh i don't have that much that many disks well you can use files instead just create them with truncate or yeah truncate is a good like they don't have to be big even just for testing purposes and then you can create like 50 disks in, <laughs> in one raid and then create zero you know status. at one point uh for a, a customer i needed to just figure out how much usable space they would get when they had i think 140 something of these 10 terabyte or 12 terabyte disks and there's some calculators online and some ways to try to do the math but it's never quite gonna always be perfect but if you can use the truncate command and literally just create 140 12 terabyte files <laughs> that's that glorious exactly the 12 terabytes that a hard drive would be not 12 real terabytes 12 manufacturer terabytes <laughs> um then you can create a pool out of that and you know they're all sparse files as long as you don't write a bunch of data to it you're not going to run out of space <laughs> even if it's only on you know uh <laughs> a virtual machine with only 20 uh gigabytes of actual disk space um <laughs> then you can actually do a ZFS list after you're done and see how much usable space you will actually have. Yeah, simulate a disk failure, delete one of those files. It's very simple. Yep. So that prepares you for the worst in case uh, it happens in the real disk world. Yeah, check out the article for more information and some background info, and then you're good to go. Uh, next, we have news from OpenBSD, a presentation from the Peter Evan Henstein, AKA, uh, author of the OpenBSD Firewall books, among others. And he writes um, recent and not so recent changes in OpenBSD that make life better and may turn up elsewhere too. Uh, that's on his blog, The Grumpy BSD Guy. So he writes, uh, I will assume that you know already that one of the signature features of the OpenBSD project is its continuous code audit and a sharp focus on secure and correct code. The audit by itself has produced a number of improvements, including a stream of bug fixes with bugs of a similar kind fixed in the whole tree and even the occasional subsystem rewrite. In addition, even for a free operating system project, life just happens. The world changes around us and drives the developers to take up fresh approaches to both new and well-known problems and in the process develop code in ways that improves life for us all. Um, so he talks a little bit about uh, what he's doing in the OpenBSD space. I guess most people listening uh, will know Peter already from his many talks at BSDCAN. And so uh, we'll skip a little bit ahead. Um, there's improvements to the OpenBSD installer, and he talks about those. Uh, and then talks a bunch about laptop and hardware support, including his new laptop, which he found uh, had problems with the disk, the SSD wasn't working as he expected. Although that one turned out to be uh, in the BIOS, if you disable the RAID mode and expose it as a regular AHCI disk, then it worked as expected. Uh, and he talks a bit about that and dealing with using uh, the sys upgrade tool to keep his machine up to date. Then talks a bit more about uh, the networking stuff and specifically, you know, your typical road warrior Wi-Fi config. Uh, now that, um, OpenBSD has the GHCP least D uh, and it's enabled by default, uh, starting with, I think, 6.9 uh, and makes it much easier to deal with uh, DHCP uh, and uh, other pieces for V6 with Slack, CD, and RAD and a bunch of other tools that ended up in uh, OpenBSD, as well as Unwind, their validating DNS resolver, uh, 
and their Resolve D uh, for managing their Resolve.conf and so on. Danny has a section about the thing that lured him in uh, that talks about, you know, the early days of IP tables and how OpenBSD didn't like that too much. And so done some experiments with this IPF firewall back then, and that uh, led into uh, PF. And he documented that in his book or the books uh, as PF kept in, uh, growing new features and changes. Uh, the books needed changes as well. So there was multiple editions of that, at least three, I think, or three is the last one, book of PF, third edition. Yeah. And so it talks about this. Yep. Then goes on to talk about SSH, open and better. Talking about how, you know, PF was written from scratch to replace a subsystem that turned out to be illegal to use in an open source context. But it was not the first time that the OpenBSD project had performed non-libriectomy. <laughs> <laughs> that is, taken on the task of replacing uh, some code that wasn't acceptable for license reasons with something new. Uh, a few years earlier, it became clear that the original developer of the secure shell system, SSH, had commercial ambitions and the license for that software had changed to a uh, in a proprietary direction. After a bit of deliberation on how to resolve the situation, the OpenBSD developers started digging around for earlier versions of the code that had been published with an acceptable license. Then they forked that version and created OpenSSH. Mm -hmm. And that came out in uh, OpenBSD 2.6 in 1999. And over the last 20 years has continued to grow and OpenSSH is definitely got the biggest market share now yeah among the unixes the bsds have them of course it's even included also, with, yeah. it's it's just the biggest market share period yeah it's there's nothing else even, just use OpenBSD. even the windows version of ssh is the one from OpenBSD. yeah open ssh it's just default standard and that's good yep and then even more stuff about pf uh and some pf adjacent features like beating up spammers with the OpenBSD spam d uh, and where that came from, talking about gray lists and traps and other things of that nature, dealing with brute force password gropers and the state of the tracking options and using that uh, to keep track of people that are doing things that they shouldn't be to your machine. He has a whole article on forcing those password gropers through a very small hole in your OpenBSD PFQs so that they go very, very slow and you waste their time. Yeah, without spamming other people in the meantime, or at least not through this uh, network connection. Then it talks about uh, ripping out the NAT guts in PF and replacing them with the new system. Uh, and then uh, replacing the old alt queue queuing system with something more modern. PF flow, offering you network insights into what the traffic that's going through your system. The whole saga that is LibreSSL, dealing with a lot of the cruft that was in OpenSSL. Mm. And cleaning that up. Yeah. And that still continues, and, I guess. Yeah, even more. Uh, improvements and other stuff that are in the article and then talking a bit about you know the official website other things you can read like undeadly uh the journal article peter's own website uh ted Udank's website which also has a lot of great stuff on it uh michael lucas's book absolute open bsd uh and of course peter's book the book of pf uh and uh to talk a I bunch guess. of other oh yes uh penning brower's talk about how open bsd sucks and uh, a mention of uh, being able to donate to the OpenBSD Foundation, which is a Canadian nonprofit. Yeah, that makes all this possible by uh, helping the developers uh, do all these projects here. And Peter's article is much longer than we could cover, so it's definitely worth a read. We have a link in the show notes, as always, so you can read it at the original source. 
All right, time for news rounds up this week. We have GhostBSD 21.09.06 up to date. Uh, the ISO is now available. Yeah, so when we're recording this, this is from like the day before yesterday. Yeah, very fresh from the oven. Like this, this came out on the holiday Monday. Yeah. Uh, by the time you see this, it is a week or two old or whatever. But uh, this is very hot off the presses. And the new thing there? Yeah, the, the big news is that GhostBSD has moved back to the FreeBSD RC.D system, uh, abandoning the, I think it was OpenRC they were using before, just because it's uh, a bit too much work to maintain those differences on all those uh, startup files across the entire base system and then the entire um, ports system as well. Yep, yep. Tom and I mentioned this once in another episode earlier, but now it's official and it's just the way it is. GhostBSD has the rc.d system again. But other things there list as the disabled access to home directories. Is that an error or is that a fix? <laughs> it lists in the GitHub ticket completed session, but uh, we would have to look what that means. Uh, there's a feature tag here. They left some fractured pastes about update station and pseudo package update in there. Oh, so these are the, the ticket headlines, not the uh, resolved states or the, what the actual outcome right, is. Yeah, so that was the, the problem was reported and is now fixed. So uh, yeah, I don't think home directories are not allowed. Yeah, not, we're not doing the home D thing not anytime soon i guess um so yeah uh, these are some of the so there's bug fixes and feature uh fixes in there or feature implementations uh like automatic switch over for the network manager and uh uh yeah some weird bug fixes like dhcp not gaining an address and stuff like this there's update instructions uh, below and how to get the ISO in the first place and write that to a USB disk to start your GhostBSD adventure. Next, uh, Suline at the Data Swamp keeps blogging and this time is about fair internet bandwidth management on a network using OpenBSD. Yeah, I think this is questions come up a little bit uh, in the question section a couple times. So uh, they go on. They have a simple DSL line with 15 megabits down and 900 kilobits up upload rates and uh, you know, many devices using the internet and two people who are doing remote work. So uh, poorly designed software, mostly on Windows, will try to auto updates without allowing you to reduce the bandwidth or just huge bloated websites trying to download everything. And you don't want to be lagging out other people's video calls while they're trying to do work and so on. And so the point of this article is to explain how to use OpenBSD as a router on your network and uh, allow you to control your internet access and make sure it's shared fairly between multiple devices so one device can't um, hog the internet. Um, they say they'll be using the queuing features in OpenBSD's PF, which relies on the CODEL network uh, scheduler algorithm, um, which seems to bring all the features that we need for this. You know, it is not possible to limit the download bandwidth because once the data was already in the router, that means that it came from the modem and it's too late to do anything about it. But there's still hope. If the router receives data from the internet, uh, it's that some device on the network asked to receive it. We can work on the upload data to throttle what we can receive. Uh, this is not obvious at first, but makes total sense when you get the idea. And goes on to talk about how that would work and how you can control the bandwidth that way. So their setup is they have their ISP's router connected to uh, the first interface on their OpenBSD router, and the second interface on their OpenBSD router goes into their switch, which all their devices and Wi-Fi and so on are uh, connected to. 
So they create a uh, PF rule, setting skip on the loopback interface, uh, blocking all stateless traffic, and passing any uh, established connections. Then they set up a queue uh, on the incoming uh, interface with a bandwidth of one gigabit. So then we're creating this queue that inherits from the parent created before it. This represents the whole upload bandwidth to reach the internet. We'll make all the traffic reaching the internet go through this one queue. You can set the bandwidth to, uh, for example, 900 kilobits here with a max of 900 kilobits. This means that, or kilobytes, uh, the queue can't pass more than 900, oh, sorry, it is kilobits uh, per second, uh, which is only about 112 kilobytes per second. You know, that's the limit of what their internet at home can do. Uh, so they're setting up queue internet to their parent STD uh, bandwidth 900K max 900K so that uh, the router won't try to send more than that out to the modem and this will help prevent the buffer bloat and cause uh, you know weird lag in your internet and so on. Hmm. Then they create a bunch of other queues. They create a queue for uh, websites which they limit to 220K uh, and allow up to 100 packets to be queued. They create a DNS uh, queue, an uh, unknown queue that's limited to 150 kilobits, uh, but has a minimum of 100, uh, so that they make sure that always some of the traffic is managed to get through. Set up one for VPN, uh, one for their VoIP, one for pings, uh, and one for their acknowledgements. Uh, and then they're controlling their acts for both web and other. Then they set up some match rules to match against those queues uh, to to put the traffic into those various queues uh, and get their traffic working. And they talk about absolute values, like why they put 900K or 406K and a bunch of the other settings there. And then after they describe it all, they show one completely put together config that you could modify uh, to apply to your uh, house as well. And they said there's also an excellent tool to monitor these queues in OpenBSD, uh, which is part of uh, SciStat, if you put it in the queue view. So if you run uh, SciStat queue, you can define the refresh rate by pressing S and typing a number. Uh, you can see packets being dropped into a queue. You can try to increase the queue limit and so on and be able to control uh, how much traffic is getting queued and how much, uh, at what point you start pushing back at the app saying, you know, you, you can't send that much. Mm. So they, they spent a week uh, scrutinizing the pf.conf manual and doing many tests and playing with different hardware to understand how the acts were the key to controlling the flow of traffic uh, and getting things set up the way they wanted it. Yep, this is very nice. You can also like simulate how some websites react when they are really slow, like delivering the data. It's kind of interesting how the websites just build up and then the style sheet comes along and then everything changes all of a sudden. Uh, or you just give your uh, guests, uh, if you want to call it that, a little bit less bandwidth than your regular uh, users at home. That's uh, all possible. Yes, for sure. If, if you're uh, on on my Wi-Fi, that's uh, the one I give out to anybody who comes over to the house. Uh, you get not the whole gigabit of bandwidth that that I'm allowed to have. Yeah, you're still a guest, right? Um, so hope I, I, I would hope that most hotels would have this by now. But yeah, as we've seen in the past uh, years of travel, hotel Wi-Fi is not using this kind of implementation. <laughs> anyway, moving yeah, on. I know some of them are, are doing things to try to deal with um, 
everybody streaming Netflix and YouTube separately uh, and, and yeah. really hammering the, the hotel's connection and not leaving enough that somebody can do a Zoom call when they need to. Uh, but it's, you know, more and more difficult to uh, separate the types of traffic because almost everything runs off port 443 now, right? Almost everything is HTTPS and encrypted and harder to identify. Mm. But, you know, sometimes the queuing is just literally down to each machine needs to get a fair share and one guy, you know, I don't want to limit the speed of my laptop, but I want to make sure that if my laptop is downloading, it's still leaving, you know, making sure that all the other machines in the house still get enough internet. Yeah, exactly. Um, with, well, at the same time, making sure that if nobody else is using it, my laptop can still slip down as much as it wants. Exactly. It's a fair sharing of resources. And if not everyone is using them, you can have your uh, original full bandwidth right. back. You don't, you don't want to just limit everybody. You know, if you have 10 computers in your house, you don't want to limit each one to one tenth of your internet. <laughs> but yeah. you want to make sure that, uh, you know, each one gets access, uh, you know, gets some of their packets in the queue when it happens. Uh, we stay with uh, Wi-Fi a little bit uh, because our next article is about NetBSD's Wi-Fi router project and it gets some updates. And they write on the NetBSD blog that after initial work on the Wi-Fi renewal branch uh, went quite fast and smooth, things have slowed down a bit in the last few months. Most of the slowdown was due to me not being available uh, for this type of work for unexpectedly long times, a problem that should be fixed now. Uh, however, there were other obstacles and unexpected issues on the way. First, BPF tabs are handled differently in the new stack and some slightly obscure site conditions of this had been overlooked in the initial conversion. To make everything work, changes to our BPF framework were needed and have landed in current some time ago now. Then, another one is many Wi-Fi drivers seem to be in a, let's say, slightly fragile state. When testing the random collection of Wi-Fi hardware that they acquired during this project in current, uh, many drivers did not work at first try and often they were able to provoke kernel panic quickly. Hmm. This is not a happy base to start converting drivers from. Another one, uh, another issue is uh, after the great success of USB net for USB ethernet drivers, Core and uh, the Martin Hussman uh, who wrote this article agreed that uh, to do the same for Wi-Fi, the result is called USB Wi-Fi and makes conversion of USB drivers a lot easier than other Wi-Fi drivers. Uh, they have conversion instructions, separate link for that in the show notes for more details. USB Wi-Fi is both quite similar, but also quite different to USB net, mostly for two reasons. It interfaces to a totally different stack and many USB uh, wireless LAN chipsets are more complex than ethernet chipsets, like have support for multiple send queues with different priorities. Developing USB Wi-Fi did cost quite some time, initially unplanned, but is expected to amortize over the next few drivers and quickly end up as a netwin. And the last issue they had was they had been hitting a bug in the URTWN driver used for initial USB Wi-Fi development and have still not found it as of today, at least from this blog post from August. Uh, it seems to hit randomly and uh, is not caused by the USB Wi-Fi conversion, a fact that they found not only recently, so for now, they will put this driver aside after spending way too much time on it and instead work on other USB drivers returning to the bug every now and then and see if they can spot it. Maybe uh, they can borrow a USB analyzer and get more insight that way. Current state of driver conversion and what drivers are still open are listed in the Wi-Fi driver conversion matrix on the NetBSD wiki. Steps ahead are the following. Uh, so one has been crossed out already, so that's done. Uh, they want to also sync the branch with head and keep tracking it more closely. Always good to do. Uh, convert the run 
driver to USB Wi-Fi, revisit the RTWN and decide if and how it should be merged with URWTN and revisit IWM and make it fully work, as well as convert all other drivers, starting with the ones they have hardware for. Currently, it's not clear if this branch can be merged ahead uh, before the branch for NetBSD 10 happens. We will not delay the NetBSD branch for this. Okay, so this might be delayed, but better delayed and working rather than too early and broken. No one is happy uh, with that. Cool, we'll watch this. And if there's news from the NetBSD side of things, we will uh, put it in a future episode. Oh, and here's a bonus from NetBSD while we're already here. NetBSD runs everywhere, even on the Apple M1 processor now. According to this tweet we found um, by Jared McNeil. Hello, NetBSD on Apple M1 is the tweet. And he has a little uh, video created, how it boots. And here's the NetBSD flag raising proudly over an M1 Mac very nicely starting to boot and detects all the hardware that has uh, that yeah this machine has and netbsd has yeah can completely boot to login i think yeah here we go you can see it scroll ahead a little bit yeah you can do a uname and yeah all the things you are used to and they're doing a open ssl speed test oh yes to see how much you know this is really the the apple hardware doing the uh, arm uh, support here of course, ARM's uh, or Apple's version for the ARM is highly optimized anyway, but at least NetBSD is working. So I guess more and more people will use this as yeah. a port. I wonder if the network is working yet because I see they failed to resolve the NetBSD NTP pool. Oh, yes, in the last few minutes of the... <laughs> But yeah, it's it's working. And I guess once people see that, they will probably add some missing bits. I like uh, Julio Marino's comment that it has so much processing power, but the font cache still remains slow. <laughs> and Jared says it's probably because it's running off the world's slowest USB stick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it runs NetBSD, of course. Very good. Uh, next, we have HardenBSD's August 2021 status. Uh, Sean Webb writes in this report that this month was spent in writing utilities and libraries for HardenBSD's infrastructure. I wrote a little bribery called lib. What's it called? Lib lat zfs. What's the lat? Yes, as in his username Latara or whatever. Oh yes, of course. Okay, so lib lat zfs to help our infrastructure monitoring daemon uh, hbsdmon uh, to monitor the various zfs pools on our systems. Though lib lat zfs, that's difficult to pronounce here, is developed out of tree. I've already merged it into the source tree. I also worked on another library, liblatutil, to make it so that our applications can have one centralized logging API. It is also a nifty SQLite 3 wrapper. One could use this wrapper to convert a SQLite queries result to JSON. Hmm. Uh, Sean also created a Noodle application, Rink, not rsync, it's Rink, uh, it's rsync without the S, to convert our every six hour autosync script from Seashell to C. Oh, okay. Um, next, he also disabled CFI for WPA supplicant. It's his hope that one day uh, he or they finally get cross DSO CFI working in base so that we can re-add CFI to some of these applications. Mm. Uh, he's hoping to get back to cross DSO CFI work in the coming week. FreeBSD rated security advisories uh, are also inbound. So he made sure that they had binary updates released in a timely fashion and the package builds are still running. 
previously updated a points management slash package from 116.3 to 117.1, introducing some major changes that caused issues with our package repo. Uh, it took him a few days to find and resolve these issues. If anyone else notices any issues with the package repo, get in touch. Um, and Loic reported an issue with the random pit calculation, so he fixed that. And he also fixed a few ports and researched the failures of a few others. Overall, August was a month spent on Harden PSD's auxiliary applications with the goal of enhanced stability. Very good. And he has links to uh, GitHub repos, or at least Git repos, for his utilities. We mentioned libladzfs, libladutil, and rink. Really have to be careful not saying rsync here. It's very, very close. <laughs> mm -hmm. Cool. Very nice. Then we have uh, the latest edition of the FreeBSD Journal for July and August of 2020. 2021, sorry. I was thinking 2021, isn't that the past? Like, yeah, it's, no, that's this year. It's been We moved on yeah, from that year. Of time. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so the focus of this episode was on desktop and wireless. Uh, and so uh, talking about that, the first topic was a straight path to the FreeBSD desktop. Uh, and then there was uh, another article on the human interface device support in FreeBSD 13. Uh, Ruslan Buchan also wrote an article about his work on the Panfrost graphics driver uh, for ARM uh, for FreeBSD. And there's also an article on updating FreeBSD from Git. Oh, yeah. Then uh, it also includes uh, a letter from the foundation by John Baldwin, uh, the letters column from Michael Lucas, uh, new faces of FreeBSD from Drew Levine, practical ports from Benedict Racially? Who, who's that? That's my column, yeah. It's, it's still new, and uh, I get occasional emails from tools. Hey, Benedict, have you seen this tool, or do you know about this one? Uh, but yeah, it's nice. People try to uh, catch on or try out what I what I posted. I find uh, cool tools for them to use. They have to be in FreeBSD yep. ports, that is. Can't be any yes. tool out on the web otherwise. If you like that tool very much, then you could put it in the wanted ports wiki on the FreeBSD uh, wiki site and maybe some ports developer will pick that up uh, but yeah this journal is available for free um, has been for a long time now uh, and you can get the plain pdf of it now as well yeah. if you don't like the web reader uh, it also has a book review of michael lucas's absolute freebsd third edition and the events calendar although the other thing i hadn't uh noticed actually is that the the letters column is a crossover episode <laughs> uh, the letter michael lucas is responding to is from Code Vicious, who normally writes uh, a similar uh, a related letters column for software developers over at ACMQ magazine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if you know Michael and uh, Code Vicious as well, you can see where this is going. But we'll let you the joy of uh, reading that for your own uh, amusement. So yes, that's <laughs> an extra long letters column. I definitely have to check that one out. <laughs> So before we dive into our feedback and questions section for this week, we should mention that Tarsnap is sponsoring us and this episode and many others before. And Tarsnap is your backup solution for everything that involves, well, backups in your files that are precious to you and you want to get them back. Uh, but if files remain on your disk, then chances are if your disk dies, then they're all gone. So you want to make backup somewhere else on another computer or aka the cloud. Uh, Tarsnap is using the cloud for backups but in a very secure way because the encryption happens before your files leave your disk or your computer, not on the cloud afterwards. So all the encrypted stuff reaches the cloud and sits there waiting, waiting, waiting for one day, one fateful day actually, to you need them back. 
uh, and then they go the other way around. They download the encrypted stuff into your uh, Tarsnap enabled system and then do, does the reverse of uncompressing and giving you your files back as long as you keep your personal key used to encrypt and sign your data. Tarsnap has very uh, easy and uh, comprehensive pricing. Uh, you pay like five dollars maybe in an, as an initial account and that's not a surprise a bill that you get you only can you, you deduce that as um your storage is used in the backup and so you, you pay up front uh and so you you can't ever get a bill yeah no surprises there and if they warn you that your um you know your balance gets low uh you, you get an email from them and so you can uh, charge up but it's very very good pricing and the amount of stuff they do to reduce the file size makes it very good for even a, a large backup that you might have. Plenty of clients available for uh, any kind of Unix systems, the BSDs, Linuxes, macOS, SigWin, because it's all based on the very familiar tar command and just tarsnap puts a little bit of its own special sauce around it. And so uh, the command line should be very familiar to people. There are also desktop clients available that wraps around this, but these are not developed by Tarsnap itself. But um, if you want to use those, that's uh, also possible. There's also a book by Michael W. Lucas about Tarsnap, Tarsnap Mastery, that explains this whole thing and why it was created. Okay, new feedback reaches us and questions about computers, but uh, it's very interesting what we get always sometimes. We should do another round of um, interview uh, questions maybe, since we have oh, Tom yes. on the, the show now. Audience interviews, yes, especially now yeah. that we have Tom. Exactly. Uh, people should uh, write in questions of just asking Tom things. <laughs> <laughs> the things you always wanted to know. Uh, so yeah, uh, send and direct these to feedback at bsdnow.tv and then they will if we have collected enough then to fill a whole show, then we can uh, do this. Otherwise, you can also use the same address to send us technical questions, I would say, or anything related uh, about the episode. First one is James this week with a backup question. And this goes like the following. Hi, guys. I've set up a backup replication of my ZFS pool to a machine at my workshop using Jim Salter's Syncoid tools or tool. It is sent a raw and encrypted and the key is never present in uh, on the workshop machine. It uses cron to SSH into the main machine as a limited user and does the ZFS send with appropriate permissions from ZFS allow. Try to configure things so the backup machine has no access to the data at all, whether in its own ZFS pool or when it is mounted on the main machine. While I can use file system permissions to prevent access to the mounted data, and I can tell Syncoid to do a raw transfer, there seems to be no way to explicitly restrict a user to raw send only. If, for instance, someone gained access to my backup machine, uh, although the existing data is encrypted, they could just alter the send and receive commands to send it to unencrypted from the main machine. Yeah, I've not managed to find any way to restrict that ability. How do you work around this vulnerability? That's a good question. Because, uh, you know, you can not have the data mounted and not have the key loaded on the source machine, but that usually means the file system's not mounted and so there won't be anything changing to back up. So it's a good point that there maybe should be a separate ZFS allow permission that only allows raw sends and not normal sends. That is a good feature request. I'm going to recommend that as a project for the ZFS hackathon that's coming up uh, in a little over a month. 
or two, like six, eight weeks, something like that. In November? Uh, is the ZFS Developer Summit. Uh, and we have a hackathon. Something like that is something you could do in a day, probably, uh, provided that you had access to, uh, you know, the Zoom room full of ZFS experts uh, to get help. But if someone got access to your backup machine, then you already lost, right? If you have, well, if you right. have it, everything if, encrypted. If, so they're, they're locked down to a regular user who can't access the files, but you've done ZFS allow so they can do a send of that data set. Right, but to another. It, yeah. So they can only do a send with the dash dash raw, or I think it's dash W for the single flag, uh, send of it, not a full send. So you only want to allow them to send the encrypted version not to be able to send the unencrypted version. And right now, ZFS doesn't give you that much granularity. And I think it would be a good idea for ZFS to do that. Yeah. So what can, can you do now to kind of mitigate that? Uh, not much you can do now. Full disk encryption with a uh, galley? Uh, <laughs> even that won't help because if the pool is imported, then the oh, galley is mounted then. Yeah. the data is accessible. Yeah. It's yeah. in the uh, memory. So other than, you know, some filling around with you know, aliases or sudo or something to, to force the command. Uh, but, you know, you're using syncoid, so it's a little more complicated. Uh, yeah, that's a, a bit of a problem. Mm, protect your backups. Um, yeah. And they have everything in there. Yeah, because, so. you know, the, the other option is to reverse the send-receive process so that you're pushing from your primary system to the backup. But you don't necessarily want to allow that either because it means if your primary system gets compromised, then they can push a backup containing nothing to your backup and now they've destroyed your backup as well. Um, so yeah, this feature for ZFS is a really good idea. Yeah. Uh, a new allow that only allows you to do raw sends. Uh, probably going to take a little bit of plumbing to make that work, but uh, that is a very interesting idea. Worth having, yeah. yeah. See, if someone picks it up at the Dev Summit, then... Uh... We're all more safer for it. Good. So thanks for this question, even though we couldn't provide a... I remember, I remember a time where I would have, you know, probably gone and done that tonight or tomorrow it's, or something. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> Looking at my schedule, I know I'm not going to get to it very soon. And, uh, but this could know, be... Plus, it'd be better for someone else to learn how to do it yeah. instead of me just doing it. Like a junior job. Like if someone is interested in ZFS development, this could be a good starting Yeah. Point. Like ZFS already has all the permission checks uh, kind of extracted as separate functions and so on. And it's like there's a whole framework for it. So adding a new permission is pretty simple. Uh, and then you basically just have to make the new permission allow basically the same as the existing send one, but only if the raw flag is set. And then you would just allow only that and not the other options. Okay. Then let's look at the next. Um, well, this name is strange. I haven't heard that before. It's, is it Jonathan or Jonathan? Well, anyway, uh, it's about certifications and goes like the following. I'm a Windows support tech and I want to learn more about BSD for my own personal home lab and hopefully add it to advance my career to a more Unix-based position. Oh, good thinking. But I'm overwhelmed by the paths to take. Uh, I want to see what is a good path to learn the basics for BSD and not focus on the semantics of the fork, like free open net, net BSD. Uh, not have to read the whole giant absolute BSD books, although that's <laughs> worthwhile. Sorry, Michael, <laughs> he writes, yeah. Um, or on creating simulated domain or enterprise setups. Should I look into the BSD certification material or am I stuck translating a Linux project to BSD and hope it's a fairly easy one, like building a Jellyfin jail or a beehive? Um, having specific little projects I find helps more, especially if they're somewhat bounded so that you, you know, 
don't run into as many problems and hopefully can finish the project to feel good about it and then do another one. Um, some of the BSD certification material is probably useful there. Uh, you know, a lot of that focuses on the very basic stuff like adding and removing extra users and so on, yeah. uh, which doesn't always make sense depending on what you're trying to build. The problem in, in quotes, really, it's not a, a problem, but for in this case, um, in a certification, you need to know all the BSDs, the free BSD, the open BSD and net BSD way of doing a certain task, like setting up a mail server or whatever. And that's difficult for a beginner if you start off with a general BSD approach. So they might, you might get a question in the certification, uh, how do you do this on OpenBSD? And you might know how to do this on FreeBSD or in general, but the OpenBSD specific command there, you probably don't know, or you have to study for that. And that's probably not the right way. The certification is great to demonstrate your right, knowledge to The a, certification material uh, talks specifically about the tasks you need to know how to do. Yeah. So it's a good source of a list of things to go learn. Yeah. For, for showing to your future employer or anyone that wants to see that, it's a good way to show the certification that you completed that. Uh, but the preparation for it is not trivial if you start off with the general BSD approach. You don't want to focus right. on... Right. Well, you know, the, the BSD certification exam was specifically designed so only half the people that took it would pass it. Yeah. True. Because the idea was to create a certification that actually proves you're competent at this. Um but yeah, for home lab tasks, it mostly comes down to deciding what you want it to do. Oftentimes, with almost any learning, it turns out you'll have much better luck learning something you want to learn or want to get working than just something someone else says you should learn. When, when you start running into trouble and it's getting difficult, something you're not actually interested in is very easy to put down and, and decide not to do or do a different way. Whereas if there's something you really want to get to work, you just have that much more drive to actually go through it and, and learn it and, and have it be what you want. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, you know, translating Linux projects is can be a good way to do it just because it's like I, I, I know the basics of how this works and I just want to do it but on this other operating system. And then that's where things like those BSD books comes in handy as a reference. You know, while you can read the absolute BSD books cover to cover, uh, they're also handy as a reference to, you know, jump to this chapter to get more background on this specific problem I'm running into or or concept I need to understand in order to be able to create uh, a jellyfin jail or whatever. Mm. Uh, when we do, the at least on the FreeBSD side, the quarterly status reports, there are always sections in there that require or ask for help, like for testing or finishing up some, some bits here and there. That's also a good way to uh, join into the projects and see a little bit what uh, what's under the hood and learn a lot this way with the BSDs or about the BSDs. That's in this case, it's FreeBSD specific, but I guess the other open source BSD projects don't mind a little bit help there as well. Yeah. So maybe that gets you started and thank you. Uh, thank you for the feedback on, uh, on the podcast you're giving. That's great. And uh, the next is Marty uh, about RPG CLI. Yeah. We mentioned this and from another episode and he writes folks i haven't listened to the episode yet but i read the links and rpg cli reminded me of doom as a process manager and he provides a link uh, from the days of yore it seems to be from computer science department oh, yeah. so this is actually yeah it's from the oh new mexico computer science department of the university of new mexico but um so yeah it's screenshots of doom and the monsters walking around have uh, PIDs and process names, and you can just shoot the ones that you would like to kill. Yeah, 
<laughs> if you survive the <laughs> the attack, um, killing a process in PS2. Yeah, but yes, it looks like that. Uh, I think that that particular bash process is shooting back. <laughs> it's very resisting. Yeah, <laughs> being killed. Um, and it, the article is a bit longer, um, telling us about you know how the initial desktop would really look like a desktop like oh on the left is your phone and whatever and it has a certain functionality there of course desktops nowadays look a bit different but that's how they envisioned that computers would look like a real desk where you do work and uh, the visualization of processes is similar and uh, then they talk a bit about game like interfaces but uh, the whole article is quite long uh, but definitely worth a read so thanks for that could have uh, put that into a regular episode but that's uh feedback now and uh good to go very nice so that's what we receive on feedback at bsdnow.tv and if we like it and most of it is good we put it in a future episode for you to listen on and that's the end of this episode for us now uh thanks for listening thanks for the people who are watching us on twitch as we are live uh, on twitch.tv slash bsdnow and uh, new episodes are announced on our Twitter channel, twitter.com slash bsdnow, and that's where you find us. 